Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue where we left off last week in Acts chapter 9. Uh, so last week we went through verses 1 through 9, and today we're going to go through verses 10 through 19. And as we continue in Acts 9 this morning, uh, we're going to see that this is the, the story of Saul going through really a sort of of, of, of death and a resurrection. That's really what's happening in these two uh, paragraphs we're looking through. It's really, in, in many ways, the death and the resurrection of Saul. It's, it's a story of Saul being changed from persecutor to an apostle. It, it's a story of him going from being an opponent of the gospel to being a servant of the gospel. Right? It's, it's a story of, of, of him traveling to Damascus to violently oppose those who claim that Jesus is Lord, to becoming one who is commissioned to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. It is a story of incredible change in the life of Saul. But will I bum you out too much if I tell you this is not the story of Saul's name being changed from Saul to Paul, contrary to, uh, you know, kind of a popular understanding. Right? It's, it's often assumed that Saul had his name changed to Paul. That's why when we read our, our letters later on in, in, our, in our New Testament, that these are the Pauline letters written by, written by Paul. And so we assume that just like Abram had his name changed to Abraham, or uh, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. So the thinking goes here, somewhere in this section here, we'll come to the story where Saul has his name changed to Paul. Uh, but that's not part of this story. In fact, I don't think Saul ever had his name changed. Uh, and you say, well, no, how, how can that be? Uh, as I read in the, last week, uh, we hear about Saul's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And as the Lord appears to him, how does he address him? He says, Saul, Saul. Um, but as we keep reading and looking for the name change, we never find it. Uh, Ananias, in our passage that we'll look at today, refers to him and says, Hey, brother Saul. And you say, well, Okay, where does this name change happen? And you keep reading and you get to something like Acts chapter 13. And the Holy Spirit himself refers to him as Saul, saying, you know, while they are worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Apparently his name hasn't gotten changed yet. Um, and, and, you, and you read just a few more verses and you go, oh, okay, I get what's happening. Acts 13.9 tells us, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and it goes on, it, it seems like, you know, as, as great and incredible of a story it would be to have in here somewhere some great name change. It seems like Saul and Paul is just two names he can go by, right? This is what happens when you're in settings that have more than one language. I remember for a number of summers, kind of, I think, between 2006 and 2013, I would spend a, a good chunk of each summer in Albania. And uh, there in Albania, I wasn't known as Dan. I was known as Denny even though my name isn't Danny. Uh, but that's just how in Albania you would kind of refer to some, a boy's name. It wouldn't end usually with just a consonant. It would have that E sound, right? So Danny, or you know, there'd be other people, Andi or Fationi. There's all the other names ended in E. That's just kind of how it was in Albania. I never had my name changed. I was just in a different setting. Similarly, my wife taught for Bolivia in a number, for a number of years. Uh, while there, 
She was not known as Jane primarily. She was known as Juanita. You can now refer to her as Juanita if you would like to, right? She would like that, uh, I think. Um, right? It's, this isn't a name change. This is just a different setting. And it's really the same thing going on with, with, with Saul and Paul through here. In Hebrew settings, Hebrew name, Saul. But as he travels out into the Greek world, what do we know him? As Paul. So, although Paul didn't have, as far as I can tell, a dramatic name changed, what we're going to see this morning is that there is plenty of dramatic change still to be had, right? As the Lord acts, we and our world and Saul specifically in our passage, we are completely changed in unexpected ways. So you please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19, and then we'll pray together a pastoral prayer based on Psalm 12. But first we'll read Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of truth. And we, by grace, are your children. You've made us the people of truth, children of truth. But we find ourselves surrounded by what is false. We look around the world and it seems that the godly one is gone, as the psalmist says. It seems that the faithful have vanished. As we've gone through our weeks, we've been uh, just overwhelmed with a flood of words from from neighbors and family, from friends through TV and podcasts and radio and all sorts of media. We have been surrounded by words and we've spoken words from our own hearts. And as a result, we have been surrounded by lies this week. So we are disoriented as we come here this morning. We are We are admitting that our world is not true and even our hearts are not true, that the father of lies, we are aware, wants to master us and control us and deceive us. So, Lord, we, again, pray with the psalmist that you'd arise 
You would cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts, that you would even circumcise our own hearts to be true. And Lord, we ask that you would place the poor who are plundered and the needy who groan under these lies in the safety for which they long. And we also say that we love your words. They are so different from every other word we hear throughout our week. Your words are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. We need these words. Where we live on every side, the wicked prowl and vileness is exalted among the children of man. So guard us and keep us by your word. Holy Spirit, we specifically pray that you would illuminate our hearts as we hear the words you inspired preached this morning. And we pray this only by the blood of Jesus as our confidence before the Father. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as we jump back into our passage this morning, the, the very first thing that happens is that some disi- we get introduced to a disciple by the name of Ananias who has a, a vision. Right? We read that starting in verse 10, that now there was a disciple at Damascus, the place that Saul had been on his way to and had ended up at. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So we don't know a lot about Ananias, truth be told. We Just learn a few things here, that he's in Damascus. The Lord appears to him. Later on in Acts chapter 22, Saul, when recounting this whole chapter 9 ordeal, will describe Ananias as a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews in Damascus. Um, But that's about it. That's all we really know about Ananias. Uh, Ananias, however, knows a lot about Saul. He knows what we got reminded of last week. He knows Saul's reputation. He knows Saul's plan that when he left Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 9, Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So you can imagine Ananias' surprise and trepidation when in verse 11 the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. You just imagine how that sounds to Ananias' ears. Wait, you want... Saul is... He's getting official confirmation that Saul is there in Damascus. The zealous persecutor Saul is there in town. And guess what? The Lord is basically saying, oh, and I gave him your name. I gave him your card. He knows to be looking for you. And I want you to go meet him. I want you to go. uh, I told you exactly where he is, and I want you to go there. I mean, it just seems like a suicide mission. Like, what in the world? Why would you want me to go there? This This is crazy. Every impulse of mine would say, go the other way. Avoid Saul. 
as, as I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think of the, the old Bill Cosby skit about Noah. Are you familiar with this? I know Bill Cosby is kind of a disgraced name but these days, but his, his old skit about the Lord's conversation with Noah uh, still holds up. It's pretty funny. Um, and I, I, I was thinking about it this week, because if you're not familiar with it, I'm not going to try and do the whole skit and make it funny. You can go on YouTube and find that. But if you're familiar, it's kind of a comedic reenaction, uh, reenactment of the Lord talking to Noah, first calling Noah to, to go build an ark. And uh, the Lord says, I'm like, you know, Noah, I want you to go build an ark. And Noah responds, you know, right, what's an ark? And then he goes on, and he explains, it's a boat, and I want you to build it. You know, it's this many cubits by this many cubits and this many cubits. And Noah responds, right, what's a cubit? And that's kind of the joke. You know, what's an ark? What's a cubit? And that's one of the jokes that kind of runs throughout. Um, but for Ananias, in this biblical vision here, it's not like that at all. There's no, I want you to go see Saul. Right. Who's Saul? No. He knows exactly who Saul is. And so that's why he responds the way he does in verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And you can fill in the blank. And you want me to go find him and Confront him. That doesn't seem to make much sense. But you see, what's happening here is that Ananias knows all about Saul. He does. He is up to date on the latest news happening out of Jerusalem. He's up to date on the latest breaking news about Saul, except he doesn't know all that the Lord is actually doing. Because what Ananias is learning here is that the Lord is doing things that he knows nothing about. More than that, Ananias is learning that the Lord is doing things that Ananias couldn't even imagine. Right? I mean, we, we established last week that on the face of planet Earth, at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, nobody was more opposed to the claim that Jesus is Savior and Lord than Saul of Tarsus. No one on the face of planet Earth was a greater enemy, a more direct enemy of someone like Ananias than Saul. But what was the Lord doing? He'd stopped him. He'd conquered him. He'd redirected him. And he had a purpose for him that he is, as he says in verse 15, a chosen instrument. On a human level, this seems absolutely impossible. seems absolutely impossible that Saul could be anyone other than what Ananias knew him to be. His heart seemed absolutely hardened. We had this rock I used as an illustration last week. I was told it was a good illustration, so I left it up here. And it didn't walk away on its own because it's a rock. You wouldn't expect it to walk away on its own because it's nature. It's not going to change its nature from being a rock. And Ananias had as much expectation on a human level that Saul was going to become a worshiper and follower of Jesus and a sympathizer to him and his beliefs as we have that this rock would have walked away this week. But by God's grace, he did not harden 
Saul's heart to be stuck in the direction it was in. He softened it. And so Ananias gets to learn the theology that Paul will actually uh, proclaim later as he writes the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, this is what Paul writes. He's writing a doxology, a praise to God, and he says, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me just read that one part of verse 20 again. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is what Ananias is learning. The Lord is the one who is doing, is doing far more than he could have asked or thought. It's something Ananias learned, and it's something we desperately need to learn. We need a theology of a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Tell me, isn't that true that it can feel simultaneously like the world is spinning out of control while the church and God's mission is spinning its wheels? It can feel um, as the years have gone on, maybe you're looking back in your life and you're thinking as the years have gone on, as the cultural changes have set in, that these obstacles to the spread of the gospel have just gotten too high to overcome. The ideological obstacles are just too high nowadays. The technological obstacles that are going to keep people away, they're just too high. The economic obstacles as things change, they're just too high. The psychological obstacles are just too high. The pedagogical obstacles are all just too high. Our culture is more resistant to the gospel than ever We have more and more uh, places around the globe that we could feature for prayer for the persecuted church Sunday. It seems like the opposition and the obstacles are just too high. Or is the God who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think building his church and building his kingdom? Which do we see? The height of the obstacles of of what's new and what's changing and what's developing and what's decaying. Or the power of God to do something like change Saul into a chosen instrument. We need to know this. I I, I need to know this. We need to know this as we plant a church. We're making these, these steps towards planting this church. I mean, all of our hope, all of our confidence in this going well is on the fact that God is working and planning beyond our working and planning. All the hope for the success of a church plant, or really the mission of our entire local church, is based on the fact that we are just playing one little piece within a larger orchestra that the Lord is directing. If it's all just what we see and what we can tell we're accomplishing, and what we know we can do on our own, I mean, it's just, just, just going to fall flat. <laughs> it's not getting anywhere. Um, but if we know that, oh, this is God who's working, 
in ways beyond what he, we see, then we can do, like, you know, first, like Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.19, we can just entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. I mean, Ananias did just that as he obeyed the Lord's command to go to Saul, to that street called Straight. Right? He entrusted his soul to his faithful creator who was doing far more than Ananias could see while doing good. And as he went to the street called Straight and went to go meet with Saul, Ananias would learn our second point, that the Lord makes people new. As we get to the end of our story, end of our passage, we can kind of jump ahead to Ananias' arrival at the house there. And in verse 17, we read that Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And like, like I mentioned at the very beginning, if we had to give a quick summary of these two passages last week and this week, we would simply say they're about a type of death and resurrection for Saul. Right? That's what happens to him from the very beginning. Spiritual death and a resurrection to life in Christ. Um, or you could also really explain it as Saul gets blinded, Saul gets unblinded. That's kind of last week Saul gets blinded, this week is Saul gets unblinded. But that would be a little too shallow of a way to put it, right? It's not just about this one sense that's gotten handicapped, right? Paul hasn't just lost one of his physical senses, and then by the end he gets it back thanks to Ananias' little prayer. No, the, the, the loss of that one little sense, that blindness that he undergoes, is really him reenacting the spiritual darkness, darkness, the spiritual state that him and all his fellow Israelites find themselves in. It's not just about losing and regaining a sense of sight. It's about the fact that him and his people are the ones who have been given the light of God's word, and yet they're blind to it, often through the word that's been given. They are people who, as Paul would describe, quoting the prophet Isaiah at the end of Acts, they are people who, seeing, they do not see. They are people who need to be not just healed in one physical sense, but born again. And that's exactly what would happen to Saul here. He would not just regain his sight and have scales fall from his eyes. He would come to have the sight to see who Jesus, Israel's Messiah, truly is. It's amazing what happens. If we were just to kind of keep on reading into Acts chapter 9 and picked up in the second half of verse 19, we'd read that for some days Saul was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving 
that Jesus was the Christ. He has been made new. He's been given eyes to see, not just to regain his physical sight so he can walk along the road on his own, but to actually not be opposed to Jesus, but be able to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And the crowds cannot believe this is the same guy. Is this not the guy who came to Damascus to round up the Christians? I just can't believe it. He's been made new. In Saul's story, let's, we have to admit that Saul's story is unique in a lot of ways. Right? It's not just like, oh, we, all of our stories just map really easily onto Saul's story. Right? We, we, were, we were not necessarily zealous persecutors of the church, especially not zealous persecutors of the early church in and around Jerusalem. That's very unique to Saul. We do not encounter the Lord as a blinding light on the road to Damascus. That's very unique to Saul. We're not given a vision and made to expect the arrival of Ananias. Again, that's unique to Saul. We do not have physical scales fall from our eyes. That is unique to Saul. But our experience as ones who come to know Christ, as ones who who are in Christ, is still one of transformation. If grace gets a hold of us, it is going to be a story of transformation because grace is the power of Jesus. And occasionally it is really dramatic. I bet many of us in here have dramatic stories of transformation. But even if we have maybe one season of life that that, that has a story of dramatic transformation, um, more often than not, it's a story of slow change. Real change, but slow change. It may be more similar to the life story of John Newton. He came up last week because he's the writer of that hymn, Amazing Grace, which we sang. Uh, And if you know anything else, if you know one fact about John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace. If you knew a second fact about John Newton, it'd be that he used to, at one point in his life, was a captain of a slave ship, and by the end of his life, he was a staunch abolitionist, one of the leaders in the abolitionist movement, uh, the, the effort to end the slave trade there in England. So that would be the two things you know. Road Amazing Grace, slave ship captain turned abolitionist. And so you would hear his story, and you'd learn that, you know, at the age of 23 in 1748, he is a slave ship captain, and he's out at sea. He had this incredible religious experience in which he, he vowed to turn his life around and give up all sorts of terrible habits and really change who he was. And so you'd think, wow, what an experience he must have had there. I bet that was the moment in time where he left his slave trading ways behind. But that would not be true. For six more years, after that incredible religious experience out at sea in 1748, he continued as the captain of some slave ships. And you think, well, okay, at the end of those six years, he must, that's when it was just a a flip got switched or a switch got flipped. I don't know which one the phrase is actually supposed to be, but something would have changed in him. That's why he ended his slave trading ways. He saw the light and the horror 
of the slave trade. That would not be true. His retirement from being a slave ship captain was completely based on medical reasons. Um, he just ha- he medically couldn't continue, so he had to retire. But, but as you just read his story, unquestionably, by some point later in his life, he is a staunch and a leading abolitionist. Newton's conversion, especially on that one specific issue that was so central to his life, was not all at once. By the end of his life, it's true, it's, it's clearly genuine, but man, you want to pin down the date in which there is all darkness before, all light afterwards? Hard to find. But this is what he could say in 1793 as he's in his late 60s. 1793, in his late 60s, he says, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I might be, considering my privileges and opportunities. I am not what I wish to be. God, who knows my heart, knows I wish to be like him. And I, I am not what I hope to be before long. I will drop this clay tabernacle and be like him and see him as he is. But I am not what I once was, a child of sin and slave of the devil. I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? This is our testimony too. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I might be. I'm not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But we are not what we once were. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am made new. Praise God for his transforming grace in our life. Real change, slow change, but real change. And when we're made new, this leads us to our third point. When we're made new, we are born into a new family. I think as we look at our passage, we need to step back for a moment and just just take in all that's happening in our scene. Um, I don't mean this disrespectfully of, of, of God's word, certainly, but I think we need to see how convoluted everything is in this scene. What do I mean by that? Well, as we, we, we noted, this scene begins with Ananias having a vision, right? There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And then the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So so Ananias is given a vision so that the Lord can tell him about a vision he gave to Saul. So it's a vision about a vision. This is not as simple as maybe it seems it should be. And even Saul's vision is is, is not a complete layout of everything the Lord wants to tell Saul. It's just, hey, go find Ananias. Like, why did the Lord set up this seemingly complex, convoluted, not efficient and streamlined process to restore Saul? I mean, why is Ananias involved in this process 
at all. I mean, the Lord does not need Ananias to restore Saul's sight. The Lord does not need Ananias to be able to communicate with Saul. The Lord clearly had a direct line of communication. He was capable of appearing to him in a vision. He has a direct line of communication with Saul. Why involve all these different parties and make it less efficient than it could be? I think the, the answer that's really just assumed is here is that when the Lord reconciles us to himself, he just as certainly connects us to each other. Right? When Saul was made new, when he was born again, he was not born as an orphan. None of us, when made new, exist on our own. Right? There is no such thing as an only child in the family of God. That's what's happening here. Could, hypothetically, the Lord have healed and commissioned Saul on his own? Sure, yes, of course, hypothetically he could have done that. But he, his way of working is never that way. Instead, we see what plays out there in verse 17 where, the, where Ananias obeys and he goes and he enters the house and laying his hands upon him, upon Saul, Ananias says to him, Brother Saul. Do you have a sense of how deep and incredible, how unexpected those words, that greeting, that opening is, Brother Saul. Why would he call him that? I mean, Ananias has to be pretty nervous going in. Right? This is, again, a guy who's had no problem with the death of Christians. And here he is, okay, I'm going to go approach him. And Saul, what, what is he feeling here, right? He knows he's, about, he's blind, he's pretty handicapped, and he's about to be approached by one of his great enemies, someone he's made himself opposed to, but now he realizes he's going to see and understand him to be a blasphemer. What sort of, just sort of rant or cut down is Ananias going to bring when he finally has a chance to see him? Oh, Saul, uh, not so strong now, are we? Oh, wow, look at you. Not looking so zealous anymore, are we? Now, what are Ananias' words? Brother Saul. Because they've both been reconciled to God in Christ, they are part of the same family and Ananias can refer to him, because the Lord said so, as Brother Saul. No shared history except one of being enemies. But because the Lord's reconciled them both to himself, they are Brother Saul. And the moment Saul is brought low into repentance, he is brought into the family of disciples. Even as he's baptized there in verse 18, right? The baptism... He receives is a baptism. He doesn't baptize himself. Right? It's a baptism given by the disciples there in Damascus. I'd illustrate this, this, this deeper theological truth this way. Right? Last week I brought a rock as my visual aid. 
This week, I bought a, brought a cross. It was actually already in here, but I brought it. Uh, I'm going to use it, right? If you notice, uh, if you studied the cross at all, you've noticed that it has a vertical beam and a horizontal beam, right? Vertical beam and horizontal beam. And uh, I think there's, there's, there's a great like, symbolic depth and significance to the fact that there's a vertical beam, an up and down beam, and a horizontal beam, a back and forth beam. Right? And that, that helps capture what the cross accomplishes. Right? The vertical beam symbolizes the fact that the cross restores our relationship with God. Right? We are reconciled to God only through Christ's death. On the cross. The only way to have peace with God is not through a righteousness that comes through the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ Jesus through his death, only by his atoning sacrifice, the propitiating death on the cross. Only way to have peace with God. But no matter who you are, no matter what your backstory is, you can't have peace with God through the cross. But the vertical beam, right, is meant to have a horizontal beam mounted on it. One of the main reasons it was erected was so that it can have a horizontal beam mounted on to it. It is not a complete cross until it has that horizontal beam. Right? There is, we are, through the cross, are reconciled to each other. We are made into one body. We are reconciled to God through the one body of Jesus as we are brought into that one body, one family through the cross. Right? As Paul puts it in Ephesians 4.25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are, we are members one of another. Right? Not boy, we should speak truth with our neighbor because if we want to grow and kind of have a family-like feel to us, we should speak truth. If we, if we want to kind of accomplish something, we should speak truth. No, he says, you, the fact of the matter is, if you've been reconciled to God, you've been reconciled to those who also have been reconciled to God. You are members one of another. So live that way. Now, you might not be that impressed by yourself, or other members of Christ's body. Uh, but have no fear. Our final point, very briefly, is simply the fact that the Lord uses clay jars for his work. Because as we read about the Lord's commissioning of Saul in verse 15, what he wants Ananias to pass along to him, we read, But the Lord said to him, says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. And if we've been reading Acts from the beginning, we would know that this is a, this is a huge kind of moment or step in the progress of the gospel. Back in Acts 1.8, we're kind of given a little index or a table of contents for how Acts is going to play out. We're, we're told that uh, the disciples will be the witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? That's kind of the table of contents for Acts. And we've had a couple of chapters about Jerusalem, and we've moved out into Judea and Samaria. 
And we are now learning that Saul is going to be a key player in taking this word about Jesus to the ends of the earth. Right? He is going to be the one who carries his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And you go, wow, what an incredible job. This gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. Why did he get that job? Is it because he was like the faithful follower from day one? You know, the moment John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Saul was right on board? No. No, he very recently came around on who Jesus is. Is it because Saul is so comfortable around Gentiles or he always wore his, his kind of Hebrew heritage lo- loosely? No. <laughs> no, he was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Right? He's a very unlikely instrument to carry the name of the Lord before the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul reflects on why he's a chosen instrument. He, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure, right? This gospel, this truth about Jesus being Savior and Lord. This treasure is the the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's the gospel message. It's the gospel power. It's the Lord's name that he is carrying before the Gentiles, right? He is that jar of clay. And he's carrying this treasure in this jar of clay. And and interestingly, or or helpfully, uh, that word that's translated jar in most translations is the same Greek word is behind that. That's the, behind the word instrument in nine, Acts 9.15. Chosen instrument, jar of clay, same thing. Chosen vessel, vessel of clay. It's the same word there. And the point is that this treasure is carried in an unimpressive and weak vessel. An unimpressive and weak chosen instrument. A mere clay pot. That's how Paul sees himself. Why was I chosen? Because I am a weak vessel. But you know what that weak vessel does? It shows that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is how Paul brings his, the message of salvation to the nations. It's through his weakness. His missionary method resembles the cross in a lot of ways. It is very much the same way that Christ became Lord, he became conqueror, that he won victory, was through suffering on the cross. And Paul brings this glorious message through his weakness and suffering. And we ourselves are used by the Lord, not even in spite of our weakness in our own experience of being mere clay pots. No, we are often used by the Lord in our weakness, in our being brought low, right? We often think something like, man, if only I, I, weren't so, I weren't so sick, depending on what season of life you're in. Oh, if only we had better finances, then we could be used by the Lord, right? If only uh, we had more political influence, we could go on and on, all ways we can wish to be stronger. We think, then the Lord can use us, right? 
We can look at the persecuted church which we pray for and think, oh man, if only there weren't persecution, then the Lord could work. Where do we learn to think like that? Not people who worship a crucified Savior. No, your weakness and worldly impossibilities are what the Lord loves to use. He insists on using it. So as the Lord acts, we and our world are completely changed in unexpected ways. He uses us like he used Saul, not in our impressiveness, but in our being made weak. So let us praise our Lord for his, his, his conquering, life-changing, world-changing grace, the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your powerful grace. Thank you that we are made new in Christ and that we are used by you, not because we are strong, but because your glory shines so bright in our weakness. Make us ourselves ones who know the gospel, who love the gospel, who carry your name with us and in us. And bring you glory no matter where you're leading us and how you're using us. Help us to know that you're the one who you can do all, way more than we ask or imagine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.